Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. This is the fourth episode of the ASHI podcast. I'm here with Dr. Priya Nori, Deputy Editor of ASHI, and we have two highly esteemed guests today to discuss a paper that's been published and one that's about to be published in ASHI. We have Dr. Richard Wenzel, formerly of University of Iowa, also University of Virginia, most recent at VCU, where he's Professor Emeritus. And then we have Professor Daniel Sexton, from, who spent most of his career at Duke University and is now also Professor Emeritus. Both are epidemiologists and infectious diseases uh, physicians. And I'm going to share some really interesting perspectives on their careers with us. Welcome, gentlemen. Well, hi. Thank you. Good to have you on the on the program. So I'd like to start with the first question. Now, one of the essays, Dr. Wenzel's essay, has been published already in ASHI, and, and Dr. Sexton's essay is really around the corner. So it's a sneak preview, so a sneak peek uh, preview to your essay, sir. Let's start with Dr. Wenzel, since yours is published already. What's the take-home message from your invited essay, lessons, or really uh, your ideas that you have for young epidemiologists? You know, two points I'd make, Gonzalo. One is I think young epidemiologists absolutely need to bond with a caring mentor uh, who will guide their career and assist in the formulation of the important questions that they may pursue in their own in- inquiries after that. Along the way, I think a key is to be comfortable with uncertainty and change. I look at both as opportunity. And without change, without uh, uncertainty, you'll never have the same opportunity. So I really would encourage people anticipate up, you know, this uh, very much, the uncertainty and change, hope for it, and embrace it. So those are the two key take-home messages, Gonzalo. Wonderful, wonderful. Dr. Sexton, pivoting to you, we've yet to publish your, your, your essay. It's in production right now, so any day now, we look forward to it. Remind us or tell us the title of your essay and also the take-home messages you have. My essay was entitled My Wandering Journey uh, in, in a Hospital Epidemiology, Become a Hospital Epidemiologist. And, and actually, what Dick just said, I, I embrace others are key points. I would add to his comments, which I agree with, that it's been my long belief that people should set goals and they should be written, they should be reviewed, and they should be your map to a career. And I made that point uh, in, in my essay. I also believe that work should be fun. If it's not fun, enjoyable, pleasant now, it probably won't be unless you make changes in your attitude and approach to medicine. And when I see people who are unhappy, I feel sad because they are on a path that's probably not going to get to a destination that they'll be proud and happy of in their career. I recognize setbacks. And finally, um, I think that uh, Dick talked about change. I would also talk about not being afraid to take a chance in life. People who try a path that is a straight path frequently get frustrated. And I think these zigzags that I talked about in my essay are part of the spice and the pepper of, of a career. I like that. Change, uncertainty, and zigzagging can lead to great things and growth. 
cool. An open mind, I think, is something that I picked up from both of your uh, responses. Absolutely. Yes. So we certainly started on a very positive note, but we should address that this is kind of a scary time for the profession. What, in your opinion, are the biggest challenges facing young ID professionals and especially those in healthcare epidemiology at present? Uh, So Dr. Sexton, let's start with you. What do you think about our biggest challenges? Well, it's hard to make a list, one, two, three, four, but I can list several, and I'm sure Dick will add to them. One thing is it's so hard for young people to network, which I think is vital, it's fun, and it's it's the way many people's careers get bounces and boosts. And networking digitally, I think, is unsatisfactory, (laughs) although we're having a digital broadcast. Person-to-person contact. I think that people who who need to find mentors, who need mentors, need to find their mentor. And that mentor um, has to be sometimes approached and it's got to be an introduction should often start with the the, the, the mentee. And I, I always say, I've told this to my fellows repeatedly, giving you will get. And people who are focused without giving advice, help, looking at opportunities when you knew people to do new things, that's important. And finally, I would say that networking outside of your specialty is a very important thing. Not only, and when I look at my own network of people, I like people in business. I like people in other domains. And that may be hard to do when you're slogging along in a fellowship or just starting out in a career. But I urge you to look to people who are way outside your specialty or your area. Dr. Wenzel, anything to add? Yeah, well, one, I think Dan's hit on a lot of important points. And what I think is happening is, in terms of big challenges, Medical centers are facing significant financial challenges that, in my opinion, all too often lead to excessive investing in the business aspects of our profession. And the focus on business really erodes the time that we have. And so what's happened now is you have young people filling out forms that you could argue are unnecessary in the computer era. They're going to meetings that I think uh, don't exactly enhance their careers. And they're just being so busy uh, seeing so many patients that they actually don't have the time to focus on the key questions. A couple of years ago, I wrote a perspective for the New England Journal called RBU Medicine Technology and Physician Loneliness. And I quoted one of my favorite authors, and Gonzalo, we've talked about Robert Piercy who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, one of the things that he said, he's truly a a philosopher, and he said, the problem was recognized decades ago. We're in such a hurry most of the time, we never get much chance to talk. The result is a kind of endless day-to-day shallowness, a monotony that leaves the person wondering years later where all the time went and sorry that it's all gone. So I worry about the erosion of time, and I think a lot of that is stimulated by the excessive focus on the business side of medicine. Thank you both. So basically for our audience here then, in your esteemed perception of the challenges, we have basically the fact that we are losing exposure and access 
to each other by everything shifting to a virtual platform. Uh, we're losing opportunities to network and our time is being lost with an excess of business facing and administrative tasks. Yeah. Great points. Uh, so I think Dick, you and I have talked about the importance of being present and uh, you know being with colleagues in person. Uh, as ironically, we have this discussion over a Zoom link. I don't think it's quite in the budget for uh, Shay to have a studio and fly us all in once a month to have these face-to-face discussions. Uh, but we all realize the importance of being present. We also realize there's a, a growing importance, or at least emphasis, I should say, on, on diversifying the talent pool greater equity, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, you're both well-known senior leaders in infectious disease and infection prevention. What do you think should be done to include more female-identifying individuals and those from other countries in practice settings to increase the diversity of the field of infectious disease, infection control, antimicrobial stewardships? What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I would say that the key is leadership. I think we're learning more and more how critical that is. And I can say that... uh, Some of the things I'm proud of, and I'll come back, as a chair of medicine, I very quickly hired the first woman division chair in the history of the department. And that goes back to the 1950s. That was Mary Nettleman. And then within a year or so, hired the first African-American division chair in the history of the department, Wally Smith, who went on a fabulous career as an expert in sickle cell disease. And about half of my fellows in infection control were women, many out of the country. So I think one, people know whether you're, whether you're open to their uh, ideas or not. And, but at the same time, I would say like a good coach of an athletic team, it's not enough to sit around and wait for them to show up. Many of them will. But I think you go out, if you find talent somewhere, and it's in an unusual person who will add great diversity. I would say you go after that person, invite them to come sit down where you'll explain to them why you think they might have a bright career ahead in, in your field. The second part of that leadership, I think, is once you have these things, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. And I think what when people see you celebrate diversity, they don't want to be left out. And I think they really want to come along and, and join the, um, the trend, if you will. So, again, I come back. Uh, leadership is critical. Active uh, recruitment is a part of that. And then always look for opportunity to celebrate. I love those comments. Leadership that's inclusive and very deliberate. Certainly recruitment uh, resonates with me also and the celebrations. Dr. Sexton, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with I agree with that. I think leadership. I also think team. In my program and in my group, we talk about team all the time. I'm a sports fan. I can't help it. I say I'm not so interested in gender and all those issues. I'm more interested in the person. And I, I always tell my I've told my team when we talk about teamwork is how's everybody interacting. We recruit my 20-some fellows that are now hospital epidemiologists. I recruited over half of them. I talked them into coming to my program. And once they got in the program, we did things that I thought were really important. We told them, I told every fellow, if you want a family, I hope you have a whole bunch of kids. And we'll help you in your life to have a happy life and have a happy family. And 
I felt like it was I was more of a coach than I was a, a leader. Like I wasn't a general, but I felt like I was a coach and I had players and I wanted to make sure that they played as a team. So we talked about team all the time. And I, Dick was right. If you build it, they will come. And right. so the answer to say, I need more women or I need more this or that. I mean, I know that's, that's the parlance, but it really is beyond that. It is, I need to build an environment that people want to come to. And I think we've been successful at that. And I hope we continue to be successful because it's not the words, it's the actions. That's a wonderful uh, summary about the teams, the inclusivity and building a, a team and environment that's really uh, attractive to all. And I've been to Duke recently. It was a real pleasure to be there a couple months ago to give a lecture. And it's quite an impressive team that you and others have built there. So congratulations. I like the sports analogies, but we won't go into that right now. <laughs> we'll talk about Argentina winning the World Cup or anything like that. I'll turn it over to Dr. Nori. Hey, thank you, Gonzalo. So we talked about some challenges before, but now I'd like to shift gears to what makes you most optimistic about the field. What gives you joy thinking about the next three to five years in uh, healthcare epi? Dr. Wenzel, would you like to take the ball? Sure. I think there are sort of uh, two themes for me. One is when you get to speak with medical students and house staff and fellows, um, you find that same excitement, quest, idealistic quest, and the idea that they want to make a difference. So, you know, you have the young people following us, and they really want to knock the ball out of the park. And I think that that really is inspiring. At the same time, you know, another perspective would be just look back. You know, when Dan and I were just beginning there was no session at IDSA or ICAC on infection control. We had to had to really argue for that. There were no journals. There were no societies. There were very little international exchange. And I think it took us probably 10 years to sort of get an idea of what the problems are, another 10 to look at uh, uh, case control studies, find the risk factors, and, and another 10 to get the intervention going. But I think what I'm really trying to say is, tremendous progress when we take the time to look back. So we have a lot to be proud of. And even more so, you look at the excitement in the young people following us. Thank you. Dr. Sexton, what do you think? I certainly resonate with everything that, that Dick just said. I, he actually made this comment. There's never been more opportunities <laughs> in the history of our field than there are right now. The complexity of medical care is a fantastic opportunity. I mean, and there are so many things that can be investigated that can be improved. And so it's almost like a playground. There are too many toys. Uh, <laughs> you don't know what to pick up. And so I think that that, that attitude leads to behavior. If, if the attitude of a, of a person starting out is, wow, this is, there's stuff to do and I, I want to do it. That's the beginning point. If the person says, I don't know what I'm going to do, that's a problem. Because there's so many things to do. And so I think that that's where mentors come in. I think that's where teammates come in, colleagues, is, is, is to point out and continually point out, hey, look at this. You know, um, they got this new gizmo and it's probably going to hurt some people. Let's go find out how bad it is or how good it is. And, and, and so I think it's attitude that leads to the recognition. And so the people in in the field need to have that attitude. And I don't think that's a problem. I think it's all naturally going to happen. 
So Dr. Sexton, you get the prize for naming our episode today, which will officially or unofficially be known as the future of healthcare epi, a playground with too many toys. <laughs> so thank you for that. That's a perfect byline. We are not the island of misfit toys. We're the playground of too many toys. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Great answers. So moving on, you're both very passionate and talented individuals. Uh, you can tell that by the way you speak, the way you present yourselves. I've heard your lectures. It's really quite inspiring. But with that in mind, tell us what activities and interests have furthered your growth and fostered longevity in your careers. Maybe something outside of medicine. I think one of the things that I've been fortunate, and I'm sure Dan would echo this, is if you surround yourself with young, inquisitive people who constantly ask questions, you're going to grow. And particularly if they're diverse and they give you perspectives, you couldn't imagine in a, in a more narrow way. And, and I think early in my career, um, this really struck me as I lived in the Philippines and Bangladesh, uh, during pandemics of cholera and actually got to see smallpox uh, uh, during my time in uh, Bangladesh. And I think the key thing that I walk away with at the end of those several month experiences in each country was it's important for young people to care for strangers who do not look like us. And I think your life changes and you live with a whole bunch of new questions and, and new opportunities as well. And then traveling to many countries, uh, reviewing their programs in Latin America, Mexico, of course, especially where I've probably taken 30 trips, but also several countries in South America. And I think what, what I've tried to focus on with the young people and myself is, am I asking a big question, an important question, a question if I answer some of it or all of it will make a difference. And I think, you know, we have to make sure that the questions we ask are, are big ones uh, and then surround yourself and actually celebrate inquisitiveness. So really it being being uh, changing your mindset, you're saying uh, really reaching or looking out for new opportunities, asking the appropriate questions and then really reflecting on that. What sort of impact those questions or the answers the questions may have coupled with really exciting people around you who have a particular zeal or interest in the field. Yes. Dr. Sexton, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I thought, was it, and this is why I'm going to focus here. Is it, what are my interests now or what, what are that Now, past and future. Okay. I, I look at life as phases. I had an early phase where I was um, a learner, you know, and, and, a, and a pilgrim. I was just arriving. Then I got there and I focused on the time and the present of what I was doing. And now I'm in another phase of my life. So my interests have changed. And I would encourage everybody to be prayer for those phases of life. You know, So right now, my interests are built on my previous interests, but changed. Uh, I've, I've long, as I mentioned in my essay, I've kept a journal since my second year in medical school. I write pretty much three or four times a week. I have an internal dialogue with myself. And in that internal dialogue, I've talked a lot about what 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 interests are going to keep me happy and excited, and how do I change as I change in my life career. So I've started to write. I know Dick is a fantastic author. He didn't mention that. I've read some of his books. Writing is a, a something that I really enjoy doing, and I I pledge to keep in touch with my twenty seven fellows. So 
Uh, another thing is I've been a lifelong photographer. I only take pictures of people. I'm not interested in a building. I'm not interested in a tree. I'm only interested in taking pictures. So I've collected 136,000 pictures, and I've curated those pictures now, and I send them to my friends and my classmates. And it's so rewarding when I send them a picture <laughs> and they, that was taken in 1974, and they go, wow, you still have that. So I think being connected with people is one of my great interests. And how can I do that? That means that I have to initiate a lot of contact. But as soon as I do, I'm back friends with my uh, roommates from medical school and that sort of thing. I also have long, for 25 years, been a bonsai enthusiast. And I have a moss garden of about 3,000 feet. And so I find that if I can do something that, that gives me solitude, it makes me much more interested in being with people like pushing that I'm charged my computer so it will run, you know? And and so um, those are my interests. I think that everybody has different interests, but it should be mindful about what you want to do because if you aren't mindful, you don't know what to do. And then you kind of empty like an empty tank. Wow. A lot of really wise words about awareness, mindfulness, kind of active solitude that leads to connectedness with others. Yeah. Really fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think another takeaway that at least I picked up was to really chronicle what you're doing, regardless of whether somebody may read that down the road, you might revisit that, or you never know, it might turn into a memoir of sorts, which I hope you both individually have planned. Love, of course, to have you back to talk about that. But shifting gears back to the question of the future of our field. What are two or three issues that you would like to see us as a society take on, let's say in the next three to five years? What are the important issues that we are just beginning to scratch the surface and you'd really like to see us? So one of the things that I really would ask us to consider is a question I'll pose to both of you, Priya and Gonzalo. Is it possible that infection control has really um, taking all the low-hanging fruit or not. I just want to challenge you with that question. And the reason I bring that up is, I, you know, I go back to something that Dan said, it just crystallized earlier for me as well. And that is for us to grow, for the field to grow, we have to do more than um, enhance the, if you will, methods and uh, approaches in infection control. Let me give you an example. Recently, I wrote a perspective on cholera in Haiti. And it's one thing I've taken care of lots of patients, hundreds of patients with cholera. But then if you add to that a country that's really undergoing severe poverty, unsafe water, food insecurity, we can't fight that alone with our infection control skills. And along the way, there's a term that I think we really have to um, begin to explore, and I'll say that to uh, both of you, and Dan, I'm sure, is aware. And the term that I have read about uh, the last several months is polycrisis. And polycrisis is a coincident, tri multiple crises at the same time. So if I go back, for example, to uh, Haiti, it's poverty, it's food insecurity, it's unsafe water. It's lawlessness. The country is controlled by gangs now who prevent people from getting to the uh, hospital. And so people who would ordinarily be saved are dying. Um, and I think for us to grow, 
we have to do more uh, and and I'm sort would engage anthropologists, for example, psychologists, people who are in finance uh, and business. If you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, this annual trust of multiple countries, and what do people trust in most countries? It's business more than government, uh, more than uh, our elected officials. And it's their newsletter that actually is like 20, 30, 40 points greater than anything else. We have to learn to deal with them and engage them for our own good. How do we get more people to accept vaccines or the protocols we might set up in ICUs? We can have say, well, I have this great article that I just read shows that it really works. We have to do more than that. And I think until we engage those other uh, disciplines that I mentioned, I think we'll miss out on some of the opportunities. So I see this as opportunity again. We have to take charge, go out there, engage these other uh, people. And I think our field will grow first to it in our own local programs and then nationally and internationally. Thanks, Dr. Wenzel. So what I'm hearing is we need to look for non-traditional partnerships and we need to stretch our muscles a little bit more in terms of who we align with, with some of these very important issues. Um, Dr. Saxon, that reminds me of something you said and something you wrote about, which is that you've always had an interest in the business sector. What can Shay do, do you think, to tackle some of these Um, very big, important issues, partnering with some either for profit or other industries that um, are not traditionally ones we would work with. My eyes are open to what Dick said. I I certainly agree with that. He's got a global approach. I've got a local approach, I guess, because I'm a Midwesterner and always thought locally before I thought globally. But, But, you know, I think that all volunteer and all volunteer organizations are structurally weak. The model that we have for our organization, Shea, is structurally weak because it requires the volunteer model. That's just unsatisfactory when you talk about the things that Dick just mentioned. And moreover, that leadership is a volunteer thing. So it, 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 it pretty much boils down to having academic people run the organization. And there are a lot of non-academic people. I'm, and, and Gonzalo is aware of this because we talked about it when he was at Duke. There's an enormous number of people who are not in the academic endeavors. They don't have a voice. They don't have. And so I think one of the solutions uh, would be to say, we need to change the model of our organization. This organization should have goals that should, that should have include a mechanism to achieve those goals. And things that Dick mentioned are a great example, but also having our leadership be paid may sound crazy, but it's the actual answer that I think needs to be done. In other words, we ask people to serve a term of a year or two. They write things in blogs and stuff, but I want people, I want their heart and soul. So one of the things I didn't mention before, I told every fellow that came to me, all I want is your heart and soul. And that sounds radical, but they got the idea that we want to be all in. And so our organization is not all in. They basically are run by people who are, it's an honorific, but, and, and I'm not putting our leaders down. God bless them. You know, they're, they're, they're volunteers and that. So I think we need to say the structure of our leadership, it should be, have some kind of rewards. And we need to include in the, uh, the people who are not in the academic circle. They are full of ideas. But if a person wants to leave their practice or leave 
uh, and they're they're putting food on the table, it's very hard for them to be in the organization. So the solution is probably money. That's a business thing. <laughs> but the money is there, for heaven's sakes. So we need to change the structure of our organization to meet the challenges that we've talked about. Now, I haven't got enough time or enough brains or enough ideas to solve that right now, but I know what the path should be, in my opinion. That sounds strong, but hey, I just want to shake it up a little bit. You know, we need a little disruption in our world. Well, great answer. It's very insightful. So to go back on some of these concepts, it seems like Dr. Wenzel was challenging us about the low-hanging fruit, saying that maybe we've done that, we've reached that level. And we need a new mindset. And Dr. Sexton was saying that we need uh, to think in, in different uh, terms with respect to organizational structures, even leadership structures. So maybe one of the messages to take from that is that what got us here won't get us there. And if we don't make a change, we may be stuck in the same rut for a while. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. Well, I want to pivot once again. And you're both very accomplished writers. Uh, for those that haven't or aren't familiar with the Biblio, Dr. Sexton and Winslow, if you enter PubMed, you'll see they have hundreds and hundreds of papers under their names uh, and books and manuscripts, et cetera, et cetera. These are, by no, these are big league players in academic medicine. But as one writes, we all know that you have to read much more than you write to be a good writer. So the following are the, the final questions. Really tell us about what books are currently on your nightstand. Give us a glimpse into, into what you read and what uh, really what stimulates you. So we'll start with Dr. Sexton. Okay, well, I'm a, I am a pretty avid reader. I read every day. I've read every day for the last, except I get pretty much every day for the last 30 years. So my focus in reading is, is basically, um, I love crime novels. If I wasn't, if I've always dreamed, my daydream is I'd be a homicide detective. I just love books about killing people and solving crimes. And I think that's been, you know, helpful in, in sort of my my attitude. But my latest books is uh, the book I just finished is called "The Earth Is All That Lasts" by Mark Gardner, and it's a, it's a biography of of uh, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, and and the the saga of the uh, Sioux Indians, which I grew up in Iowa, where the Sioux Nation was was in power, and so uh, it's a fantastic book about the uh, the cruelty and the uh, the humanness, the, how human these hum- Indians were. And there's a good historical record about Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. Um, I, I also just finished John Feinstein's book, Where Nobody Knows Your Name. It's about dead people who play in minor league baseball. I, 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 and, and it's just amazing to me when you read that book, how people have a dream that never comes true. And then Feinstein brought out the strong point that these dreams didn't die. They, 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 they were a source of satisfaction because they pursued their dreams and never made it to the bigs. I also, the other book that I strongly recommend is, is uh, 109 East Palace Street. It's the story of the Los Alamos Project and Robert Einheim. And, and I would just tell you those who, just as a teaser, if you read that book, you would say to yourself, how did they build that bomb? And uh, it turns out my uncle was an aeronautical engineer who was at Los Alamos. So that book had a lot of meaning to me. But um, talk about a big idea. And the, how the bomb was built and how Lost Alamos came about is a fantastic story with some actual lessons for people who want to do big things. So for a voracious reader, but with a focus on crime novels, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, it's not like Pulp. If I really figure it down, I, I get a crime novel and I can read it like bang. I'm a fast reader. So it's kind of like an upper. <laughs> Love it. Dr. Wenzel, 
Yeah, I'm a slow reader, but uh, I still read. I, I love reading. I love writing. And I have a sort of a diverse group of books that I've just finished or plan to look at. One of them is called Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's uh, Economy. And the author is Adam Tews, who's a professor of history at Columbia with an expertise in finance and spreadsheets. And he can say things in words that even some of us outside uh, finance can grasp. But he's the one has been looking at the term polycrisis. And because I've got interested in that term, what it might mean. And remember what, what I'm trying to convey is when you have multiple crises coincident in time, they interact in ways that are incredibly uncertain. And we don't know how that'll happen. But often the final product is greater than the sum of the parts. So it is truly an interaction. We have to understand this. So this is my first effort to look at finances, uh, heavy uh, sometimes, but it looks at what we've done around the country. The second is sort of uh, about 10 years ago, I took a trip to Cuba, fell in love with the people on the island, and they're only a half hour flight from here. And there's a book that won some awards called Cuban and American History by Ada Farrar who was born in Cuba, and uh, she goes through the whole history, sort of looking at Cuba at the same time uh, over shoulder, what we're doing in America, and the parallel lives of our countries, including the dependence on slavery, just in bold, blunt terms, and somehow our inability to get along with each other. And they're, you know, like 90 miles off the coast of Florida, I think we ought to be able to do better. And this was a wonderful book if you're interested in the history of that island. And then just for fun, somebody just sent me a, a book called Philosophy of Modern Song. This is Bob Dylan's book, which is really fun for those of us who like sort of contemporary music. Dylan is clearly not just a, a guitarist, but a poet and a philosopher and folk song iconic singer. But what he does is go through maybe uh, 50 to 100 songs, tells you when they were released, who sang them, and then he interprets things in the lyrics that I often realize I listened to the music, but I didn't get that from all the lyrics. And so it was a little bit insightful as he said, no, no, this is what was really going down, you know. And the last book, uh, one of the fellows, former fellows sent me, was... uh, uh, leadership by Henry Kissinger, certainly a controversial uh, guy at age 99, supposedly wrote this book, but he probably has an army of people. But there are things in there that I think are really good. And one of the things that he emphasizes is the time for decisions is often most critical when you have the least information. And when you then have so much information, you waited for that to happen that your ability to influence things narrows considerably. And it was kind of stood me right up as as I think about that. And he then actually goes on to talk about um, COVID in 2020 and how did we do? And we sure as hell know that uh, we failed pretty miserably in the beginning. Wow, what a rich nightstand of books between the two of you. We have Detectives, Dylan and Kissinger and many others in between. This has been a huge, huge pleasure and honor. Dr. Nori, do you have any other comments? Only to say thank you both for your contributions over the years, inspiring 
young folks, I guess, like myself, and uh, for continuing to stay active and providing thought leadership. And we are incredibly indebted to you both. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you again for joining us. We're we're honored to have your your manuscripts published at Ashi. We're we're certainly thrilled to have you here on this podcast and continue to be inspired by both of you. And thank you for challenging us and really to expand our horizons. And that's really the purpose of this is to get new perspectives, hopefully leading to growth. So thank you both. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Nori, uh, for your your assistance and your collaboration in this podcast. Any last minute uh, comments, gentlemen? No, it was a pleasure, really. Uh, good to see Dan again and meet you, uh, Dr. Nori and uh, Gonzalo. Of course, we uh, trade ideas frequently. Yes, yes. Dr. Sexton? I thank you as well. I, I, this has been fun for us, for me, and I'm sure for Dick as well. It's kind of just fun to have these kind of conversations. And, and this is a great conversation from my point of view, because I just learned some things from, that I didn't know before. So I, I feel like that was a bonus. Wonderful. Thank you all to our listeners. We look forward to publishing this podcast and we look forward to the next podcast in the coming month. Thank you.